0: Third Conference The Resurrection of the Dead and the General Judgment. Ecce Mysterium Vobistico, in momento, in iptu oculi, in novissima tuba, canet enum tuba, mortuid resurgent incorrupti. Behold, I tell you a mystery, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall rise again incorruptible. 1 Corinthians 15 51 and 52. The world must have an end, and that end will not take place until Antichrist has appeared. Protestantism and unbelief reject the individuality of Antichrist. They consider him to be a mere myth, an allegorical imaginary person. Or else they see this man of sin, foretold by St. Paul, as nothing more than the leader of the Antichristian fight, the chief and messiah of Freemasonry and the sects, raised up in order to bring civilization to its zenith by liberating it forever from the darkness of superstition. In other words, eliminating all positive religion and every revealed truth from the whole surface of the earth. Among the truths relating to the end of our destiny in time, there is one which is particularly repugnant to human passions, one which rationalism and free thinking assail ceaselessly and remorselessly, making it the target of their most astute sophistry and of their most audacious denials. That doctrine, the most glorious and most consoling of all doctrines for our human nature, is the future resurrection of our bodies. Sometimes, as St. Paul found at Athens, unbelieving science seeks to crush the doctrine beneath the weight of its derision and sarcasm. At other times, as happened at the tribunal of the praetor Felix, it turns pale on hearing it mentioned, and feels terror-stricken. Acts 24-25 It is clear from this passage, and from many others recurring at various points in the epistles of St. Paul, that the dogma of the resurrection of the dead was the favorite and popular subject of the apostles' preaching. He expounded it boldly in the Praetoria, in the synagogues, and in the Areopagus of the wise men and philosophers of Greece. In the eyes of St. Paul, this doctrine of the future resurrection is the foundation of our hopes, the solution to the mystery of life, the principle, crux, and conclusion of the whole Christian system. Without it, divine and human laws would be devoid of all sanction, and spiritual doctrines would be an absurdity. Wisdom would consist solely in living and enjoying like the animals. For if man is not to live again after death, The just man who fights against his own feelings and checks his passions would be senseless. The martyrs who suffered for the honor of Christ and let themselves be torn apart by lions in the amphitheaters would have been only troublemakers and freaks. Once it is granted that the destinies of man are limited within the bounds of the present life, there is no happiness in this world except in the crassest and most brazen materialism. The only true gospel, the only sound, rational philosophy, is that of Epicurus, summed up in the words, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we shall die. In order to turn souls away from gross cravings and raise them up to aspirations worthy of their heavenly origins, the Apostle does not cease to instill this great truth, and at the same time he draws from it the consequences which bear upon the ordering of life and the external and internal regulation of human acts. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall all indeed rise again, but we shall not all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall rise again incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And when this mortal hath put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-one through 55 In the preceding verses, the great apostle explains, no less wonderfully, the theological reason and the sovereign excellence of this mystery, of which God has made him the interpreter and herald. The body of man is sown in corruption, it shall rise in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it shall rise in glory. It is sown in weakness, it shall rise in power. It is sown a natural body, it shall rise a spiritual body. The first man Adam was made into a living soul, the last Adam into a quickening spirit. The first man was of the earth, earthly. The second man, from heaven, heavenly. Therefore as we have borne the image of the earthly, let us bear also the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot possess the kingdom of God, neither shall corruption possess incorruption. 1 Corinthians 15, 40-50 Here we have a statement, drawn up by a master hand, clear and concise, and any interpretation which the human word might seek to add would serve only to weaken its vigor and clarity. Such is also the true Catholic faith which the Church has inscribed in the creed which we recite, and which she ordains to be sung in her places of worship on solemn feasts. I believe in the resurrection of the body, I await the resurrection of the dead. Both St. Athanasius in his creed and the Fourth Lateran Council express this truth in terms no less precise and even more explicit. All men, they say, must rise again with the same bodies with which they were united in the present life. In fact, if, after being dissolved and returned to the dust from which they came, our bodies were not to be reborn with their entire limbs and the totality of their corporeal constituent parts, If they were not to reappear with the same faces and the same features so that, when we saw one another again on the day of judgment, we would recognize ourselves immediately, there would then be no point in calling our rebirth a resurrection, but a new creation. Thus it is quite certain that, at the judgment, we shall be in every respect the same. The feet which will support us then will be the feet which have borne and sustained us during our exile and the days of our pilgrimage in time. The tongue through which we shall speak will be the one which once gave voice in divine praise or in blasphemy. The eyes which will enable us to see will be the selfsame ones which open to the rays of the sun which shines upon us. The heart which will beat in our breasts will be the very heart which the ardors of divine love will have consumed, or which will have let itself be devoured by the impure flames of lust. Such was the unshakable hope of Job. As he sat on his dunghill, wasted away by putrefaction, but with an unruffled countenance and shining eyes, the whole span of the ages flashed through his mind. In an ecstasy of joy, he contemplated, in the brightness of the prophetic light, the days when he would shake off the dust of his coffin, and exclaimed, I know that my Redeemer liveth, whom I myself shall see, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. Job 19, 25 This doctrine of the resurrection is the keystone, the pillar, of the whole Christian edifice, the pivot and center of our faith. Without it there is no redemption, our beliefs and our preaching are futile, and all religion crumbles at the base. Rationalist writers have declared that this belief in the resurrection was not contained in the Old Testament and that it dates only from the Gospel. Nothing could be more erroneous. We need only read through the long line of Mosaic tradition, listening to the great voices of the patriarchs and the prophets to see that they all tremble with joy and hope at the prospect of the promised immortality and celebrate this new life which will become theirs beyond the grave and will have no end. It is said in the book of Exodus, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In St. Matthew, Christ uses this passage to prove to the Jews the truth of the resurrection. And concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken by God, saying to you, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Matthew 22:31. Did not the mother of the Maccabees, standing amidst the blood and the scattered, mutilated limbs of her sons, strike the evil Antiochus dumb with fear, when she said to him, But thou, a wicked and of all men most flagitious, be not lifted up without cause with vain hopes, whilst thou art raging against his servants. For my brethren, having now undergone a short pain, are under the covenant of eternal life. Second Maccabees 7. For the saints of the Old Testament, this belief in the resurrection was not only a symbol and a speculative doctrine; it was their fundamental faith, expressed in the marvels and works of their lives, of which the institutions they left us were representative types. Saint Jerome says. Chief among them was Abel, whose blood, crying out to the Lord, bore witness to his hope in the resurrection of the dead. Next came Enoch, carried off so that he might not see death. He is the type and image of the resurrection. Thirdly, Sarah, whose barren womb, exhausted with old age, conceived and brought a son into the world, gives us hope of resurrection. Fourthly, Jacob and Joseph left instructions for their bones to be gathered up and honorably buried, thereby confessing their faith in the resurrection. Fifthly, the withered rod of Aaron, which blossomed and gave fruit, and the rod of Moses, which at God's command became alive and turned into a snake, offer us a shadow and an outline of the resurrection. Finally, did not Moses, who blessed Reuben and said, Let Reuben live and not die, when Reuben had long since departed from this life, acknowledge that he desired him for resurrection and eternal life? And if these various testimonies were to be deemed mere allegories or mystical testimonies, we would conclude this list with the very explicit words of Daniel, which leave no doubt about the constant and universal faith of the Old Testament in the future resurrection. And many of those that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some unto life everlasting, and others unto reproach to see it always. Daniel twelve two. This truth, affirmed by Scripture, is proclaimed no less boldly by reason and by Christian philosophy. Philosophy covers, in its vast field, all that pertains to the nature of God, the nature of man, and that of the world. Now the dogma of the resurrection belongs to the ideas which philosophy gives us on these three subjects, which fall within its realm and are the matter of its investigations. In the first place, the dogma of the resurrection follows from the ideas which philosophy gives us on the nature of God. Christian philosophy teaches us that God is the efficient, the first, and the final cause of all the creatures in the world. Having freely created them, with absolute sovereignty and independence, He has marked them all, to a greater or lesser degree, with the character of His own likeness and His infinite perfections. However, the human body, made by His own hands and enlivened by His breath, is the epitome of His marvels, the masterpiece of His wisdom and divine goodness. By the beauty and elegance of its construction, the nobility of its bearing and the splendors which shine through it, the body of man is infinitely superior to all the material beings which have come from the hands of God. It is through the body that the mind reveals its power and exercises its kingship. It is the body, Tertullian says, which is the organ of the divine life and the sacraments. It is the body which is washed by the water of baptism, so that the soul may obtain its purity and clarity. It is the body which is anointed by the oil and the unction of the Holy Ghost, so that the soul may be consecrated. It is upon the body that hands are imposed, so that the soul may be enlightened and can communicate blessings. It is the body which receives the Eucharist and quenches its thirst with divine blood, so that man, becoming one with Christ and sharing with Him the same life, may subsist eternally. Again, it is the body which crosses the hands in prayer and bows in adoration. It is the body which is emaciated by fasts and mortification, which offers itself as a holocaust on scaffolds and stakes, and is consumed in martyrdom, which state is not absolute and irrevocable until it is sealed by death and expressed in blood. And could the body of man, instrument of the most heroic deeds, channel of all graces and blessings, champion of Christian witness, priest in altar of sacrifice, and virginal spouse of Christ, be like the grass in the fields, bursting forth into life for a moment, only to become the prey of worms and the guest of death forever? That would be a blasphemy against providence and an affront to his infinite goodness. The dogma of the resurrection of the dead follows from the ideas which Christian philosophy gives us about God. It follows, in the second place, from the ideas which this philosophy gives us about the nature of man. Man is really composed of two substances, spirit and body. These two principles are united by links so intimate and profound, there is between them such a close reciprocity and interrelationship, That were it not for the instrumentality of the body, the spirit, by its very nature, would be inapt to exercise any of its functions. It would be like a puff of wind which, in the absence of an organ, could not resound, or a lyre with loose and broken cords which would no longer disturb the air and would remain without tune or echo. Thus, without the body, the soul cannot enter into a relationship with the eternal, visible world. It has neither the use of sight nor the use of hearing. It cannot exercise its action and its sovereignty over matter, nor gain control over the elements, nor savor fruit, nor breathe in fragrance. The mouth itself, the mouth which may have held forth in words of wisdom, which has so often opened to teach or to praise, is no more than a withered, arid member which the soul can no longer use to move hearts and enlighten minds. No doubt, as St. Thomas teaches, God will confer upon the separated souls after their death a form of existence which will enable them to know one another, to hold communication among themselves, without the aid of corporal organs of which they will have been deprived. That, however, will be a marvelous and exceptional means, beyond the normal conditions and laws of human beings. What is certain that, in itself, and leaving aside that capacity which God, by his power, will add to our inner constitution after death, The soul deprived of its body is but an isolated, mutilated substance, cut off from all communication with the world of the living. If you ask why God saw fit to unite in one and the same creature two principles so disparate, so different in their essence and properties as mind and body, why he did not wish man to be, like the angels, a pure spirit, I will reply that God so acted in order that man might be truly the king and the epitome of all his works, so that he might, after the manner of Christ, incorporate in his personality the totality of created elements and beings, so that he might be the center of all things, and, by bringing together mind and body, the visible and invisible order, serve as interpreter of both, and offer them simultaneously to the Most High in his homage and adoration. Hence it is that if man were to be deprived forever of his body, the material and visible creation would no longer have any mediator or pontiff, no longer have any voice to address its hymn of gratitude and love to God, and the link which unites inanimate being to the Creator would be irreversibly broken. So, if God had not resolved to cast his work back into the void forever, if this earth, sanctified by the footsteps of Christ, is destined, once radiant and renewed, to subsist eternally, then man must rise again in a future life to reconquer its scepter and kingship. Hence, once more it follows that death means not ruin but restoration. If God has decreed that our earthly abode shall one day be dissolved, it is not for the purpose of despoiling us of it, but to render it subtle, immortal, impassable. His aim may be compared with that of an architect, says St. John Chrysostom, who has the house owner leave his house for a short period, in order to have him return with greater glory to that same house, now rebuilt in greater splendor. The propriety and the necessity of the resurrection follows from the nature of man. They follow lastly from the laws and nature of the world. The law of the world, says Tertullian, is that everything is renewed and nothing perishes. Thus the seasons follow one another in their course. The trees loose their fruit in autumn, and their leaves turn yellow and dry, like an adornment which has faded. But when autumn gives way to spring, the trees become green again, their buds spring forth, and their leaves adorn themselves with a new crown of flowers and fruit. Thus the grain and the seed, laid in the furrows of the land, wither and appear to dissolve from the effect of humidity and the action of the air. But by the time of the harvest they will have broken through the surface of the soil, and been born again in greater splendor, rejuvenated and renewed as an ear of corn." In the same way, the sun, at the close of the day, disappears in the shades of its twilight and seems to sink beneath the depth of the ocean. But in the morning it appears anew at the appointed time, to illuminate the earth and enkindle the air with its light and fire. Death is only slumber, a latent state. It is a state of rest and silence, where creatures, apparently motionless and buried, take on a new shape and assume a new vitality and a new energy, In the tomb where they sleep, they undergo a process of incubation and recasting, from which they will emerge more free and transformed, like a torch which has gone out and is rekindled with greater brilliance by the vivifying breath of men, or again like the insect which pulls itself over the mud of the ground and which, having been enclosed in its shell, emerges with new strength and spreads out its shining wings. At this point, certain questions need to be elucidated. It is said that the dead will awaken at the sound of the trumpet. It is said that all will rise again, but that all will not be changed. Finally, it may be asked whether men will rise again in the state and at the same age as when they died in this world. In the chapter on the fear of the judgment, quoting the words of St. Paul, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet shall sound, St. Jerome says, at the sound of the trumpets, the whole earth will be stricken with fear. And further on, whether you are reading or sleeping, writing or keeping watch, let that trumpet always resound in your ears. Will this trumpet, the echoes of which will penetrate the murky caverns of the abyss and awaken the fathers of the human race from their long slumber, give out an audible sound? It seems probable. The angels who on that day will assume air bodies in order to be seen by all men may also construct, out of the elements and diverse substances of the air, material instruments capable of emitting real sounds. However, if we feel reluctant to accept this explanation, we can keep to the interpretation of St. Thomas who tells us that St. Paul uses the term trumpet only allegorically as an image. Just as among the Jews the trumpet was used for summoning the people to the great feasts, urging on the soldiers in battle and giving the signal to strike camp, so the voice of the angel is called a trumpet by analogy, by reason of its power and glitter, and the ability it will have to summon all men in an instant to the same place. Secondly, it is said that all men will rise again, but that not all will be changed. It is certain that the damned will rise again, possessed of all their physical and intellectual faculties and all their limbs, and that their bodies will not be subject to any illness or change. But, lacking the nuptial robe of charity, they will not be clothed in the qualities of the glorified bodies. They will be reborn neither transfigured, nor luminous, nor subtle, but such as they were on earth, passable, opaque, shackled to matter and to the law of gravity. They will not feel the intensity and violence of the fire any the less thereby. And this fire will cause them the greater suffering, because, being in a perfect state of health and in full possession of their physical and intellectual vigor, they will be all the more conscious of its energy and action. The fire of the damned is a fire lit by the breath of God's justice, created solely to punish. Consequently, its severity is not at all proportionate to the weakness or diversity of temperaments. It is measured according to the number and gravity of the crimes to be punished, as it is said, their fire will not be extinguished. This fire will consume without destroying. It will cling to its victims as to a prey, without their organs being affected by it, and without their flesh ever feeling any tear or injury. Lastly, will men rise again the same age as they were when they died? The most probable opinion, and the one most in harmony with Scripture, is that they will rise again in the state of perfect man, according to the age of the fullness of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5.13 In other words, when all men have been restored to the type and image of Christ, at least as far as befits the number and degree of their merits, they will be reborn in the maturity of manhood, in the full development of their being and physical constitution, just as Christ on the day of His resurrection and ascension, when, entering upon His bliss, He took possession of His eternal sovereignty. Finally, will Jesus Christ be the sole author of the resurrection, or will it be brought about through the ministry of the angels? We say that it will be accomplished directly by the power of Christ, but that the angels too, who are his ministers, will be called upon to cooperate and lend their assistance. For it is said in St. John chapter 5, The hour cometh, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Furthermore, it is said in Matthew 24, And he shall send his angels with a trumpet and a great voice, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds. Thus Jesus Christ, as king and leader, will give the signal. He will utter his command and leave his angels the task of gathering together the scattered elements which have belonged to our bodies and which are destined to reconstitute them. To these truths founded on Holy Scripture, mocking, skeptical science raises objections drawn from the laws which bind the present order and which it considers decisive and irrefutable. How, they say, will the angels, or indeed any other superior beings, however great be their degree of perfection, ever manage to gather up and separate the remains and particles of human bodies, scattered over every continent, dispersed beneath every firmament, engulfed in the seas, some dissolved, others turned into vapor or vegetable sap, some of them having served in turn to form a multitude of organized living beings, Since the same particles of substance will have belonged at different times to an infinite diversity of bodies, will it be within the power of an angel to assign them to one particular person rather than another? It is easy for us to reply that, when the angels receive the command to gather together the ashes of the dead, whether with the aid of their natural knowledge or assisted by a revelation from above, they will immediately know which are the elements and material parts that must form each human body. They will know in which place on sea or land these material parts lie, and in what form they subsist. There is a pious belief that each angel will concern himself particularly with the human creature whom God had once entrusted to his care. Can it be supposed that these good angels forsake the remains of those creatures over whom they had watched with such loving kindness and solicitude? That they do not follow them through all their transformations, and that, at the required moment, they do not have the means and the power to find the ashes? Furthermore, are not the angels God's delegates? How then can it be admitted that God, who sees all things who is present in the atom, in the blade of grass, in each grain of sand on the seashore, will be unable to make them distinguish the particles of our bodies which his gaze embraces, and in which he lives substantially by his immensity. Let us note, however, that the ministry of the angels will be limited to gathering together at the appointed place the remains and particles of our bodies. As for the arrangement of these different pieces, the spirit of life which will again be infused into our reconstituted bodies, that, says St. Thomas, is a creative work which exceeds the power of the angelic nature itself, and which will be wrought by the direct, immediate power of God. Hence the reason why the resurrection will be instantaneous. It will be accomplished in the twinkling of an eye, says St. Paul, in an imperceptible instant, in a flash. The dead, asleep in the slumber of many centuries, will hear the voice of the Creator, and will obey Him as promptly as the elements obeyed Him during the six days. They will shake off the binding clothes of their age-long night and free themselves from the grip of death with greater nimbleness than a sleeping man awaking with a start. Just as, of old, Christ came forth from his tomb with the speed of lightning, cast off his shroud in an instant, had the sealed stone of his sepulchre lifted aside by an angel, and hurled the guards, half-dead with fright, to the ground, so, says Isaiah, in an equally imperceptible space of time, death will be cast forth. Isaiah 25, 8 Ocean and land will open up their depths to eject their victims, just as the whale which had swallowed up Jonah opened its jaws to throw him out on the shore of Tharsis. Then human beings, free, like Lazarus, of the bonds of death, will rush transfigured into a new life, and will insult the cruel enemy which had felt sure that it would keep them fettered in endless captivity. They will say, O death, where is thy victory? O death, where is thy sting? There is one senseless and crass objection which we think it right to point out. It is the one raised by the materialists of our time. The human body, they say, is composed and recomposed unceasingly through age, sickness, changes of elements, and especially by nutrition. It is subject to constant and perpetual loss and renewal, the limbs can wither or grow fat, the hair falls out and grows again. It has been ascertained that, of the blood and humors which made up the material structure of the child, not one single particle remains in old age. Will all this dust, all these different and incalculable remains which have gone to form his organic life, be restored to man once he arises from his ashes? If they are not given back to him, if he is still deprived of them, how can it be said that he will be born again with the same body to which he was united in this life? If, on the other hand, he rises with the totality of the elements which have gone to make his constitution, then the bodies of the resurrected elect, which, it is said, must be filled with harmony and perfection, will in fact be just a mass of shapeless, defective elements. True science has long since made short work of the inconsistency and absurdity of such a theory. In our times, a publicist of great profundity, an eminent theologian, knowledgeable in the natural sciences as well as in the sacred sciences, has disproved by an irrefutable argument these doctrines, which are as base as they are presumptuous and foolish. In the body of a man, he says, there is both something essential and something adventitious and accessory. The essential part is what he shares with no one, what he alone possesses and will possess forever. It is the part of him which existed at the moment he was informed, animated, and vivified by his soul. These essential elements he will always keep, they will always be his. The rest, that which is produced by nutrition, digestion, and assimilation, is not he. He can lose it, and does lose it, without ceasing to be himself." It will be with these essential, personal elements that God will resurrect the glorious spiritual bodies, as also he will resurrect the immortal corruption of the damned. The soul being the same, the real kernel, the constitutive element remaining the same, the rest is of little importance, and its identity will subsist eternally. Moreover, it has been painstakingly demonstrated, first, that in a body as large as the earth, there are enough gaps and pores for it to be conceived as being reduced to the volume of a grain of sand, Secondly, that conversely, in a grain of sand, there are enough separable parts, atoms and molecules, for a globe as large as the earth to be formed from them. In view of these two utterly overwhelming mysteries of nature, dare we dispute the possibility or impossibility of the reconstitution of the human body with its essential original elements? Moigno, Splendors of the Faith. Let us conclude this account of the resurrection by recalling its magnificence and sublimity, The resurrection will be a grand, imposing spectacle, surpassing all those of which the earth has ever been the setting, and eclipsing even the solemnity of the first creation. Of the former, the most beautiful picture depicted for us comes from the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 37, verses 1 to 13. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and brought me forth in the spirit of the Lord, and set me down in the midst of a plain that was full of bones, and he led me about through them on every side. Now there were very many upon the face of the plain, and they were exceedingly dry, And he said to me, Prophesy concerning these bones, and say to them, Ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will send spirit into you, and you shall live, and I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to grow over you, and will cover you with skin, and I will give you spirit, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. And I prophesied as he commanded me, and as I prophesied there was a noise, and behold a commotion, and bones came together, each one to its joint. And I saw, and, behold, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin was stretched out over them, but there was no spirit in them. And he said to me, Prophesy to the Spirit, prophesy, O Son of Man, and say to the Spirit, Thus saith the Lord God, Come Spirit from the four winds, and blow upon these slain, and let them live again. And I prophesied as he commanded me, and the Spirit came into them, and they lived, and they stood up upon their feet, an exceeding great army. And he said to me, Son of Man, all these bones are the house of Israel, They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost, and we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will open up your graves, and will bring you out of your sepulchres, O my people, and will bring you into the land of Israel. With the resurrection accomplished, the immediate consequence is the judgment, which will take place without delay. It is impossible to imagine the innumerable members of the human family, made up of the long line of generations, massed together over the confined space of the surface of the earth, trying to recognize the traces of the places where they once dwelt, and again reduced to sprinkling them with the sweat of their brow and wrangling over the ownership of the land. It is evident that mankind, once resurrected, will enter upon another mode of existence, and that divine goodness is bound to open up new abodes, new habitations. These habitations will be of different kinds, according to the merits or demerits of each person. It is pointless to refute those godless men who deny this supreme manifestation of justice and solemn climax of human destiny. The general judgment is a certain fact, announced by the prophets. It is a truth which Jesus Christ constantly stresses, a truth ratified by reason and consonant with the law of conscience and every idea of equity. In Holy Scripture, each time that the judgment is spoken of without any qualification, and each time that this day of judgment is designated by the words Dies Domini, Dies Irae, or other similar terms, these expressions must be understood as referring to the general judgment, which will take place at the end of the times. Thus it is written, but I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you, Matthew 11:22. 22. It shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee, Matthew 11:24. 24. The day of the Lord shall so come as a thief in the night, 2 Thessalonians 5, 2. We beseech you, brethren, says St. Paul, that you be not easily moved as if the day of the Lord were at hand, 2 Thessalonians 2, 2. The prophets are full of similar words, The great day of the Lord is near, says the prophet Sophanias. That day is a day of wrath, a day of tribulation and distress, a day of calamity and misery, a day of darkness and obscurity, a day of clouds and whirlwinds, a day of the trumpet and alarm. Christ speaks more explicitly in St. Matthew, chapter 13. Suffer both the wheat and the cockle to grow, and in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather up first the cockle and bind it into bundles to burn, but the wheat gather ye into my barn. Elsewhere in the same gospel, chapter 13, verse 47, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like to a net cast into the sea, and gathering together of all kind of fishes, which when it was filled they drew out, and sitting by the shore they chose out the good into vessels, but the bad they cast forth. So it shall be at the end of the world. The angels shall go out and shall separate the wicked from the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have ye understood all these things? They say to him, Yes. Let us add to these texts from Scripture the testimony of St. Thomas, who gives us three theological reasons for the opportuneness and propriety of a universal judgment. The first of these reasons consists in the fact that the works of man, whether they are good or bad, are not always isolated, transitory acts. More often, especially in the case of the leaders of nations and those who are invested with public authority, they continue to subsist after they are concluded, either in the memory of other men or in public acclaim, as a result of the consequences they have had and the scandal they have caused. Thus, at first sight, A particular secret crime seems to be only a private personal deed, but it becomes social on account of its effects. Certainly it is of faith that there is a particular judgment, and that every man at the instant of his soul's departure from the body appears before the tribunal of God to hear his eternal sentence pronounced. Yet this judgment cannot suffice, and it is essential that it should be followed by another public judgment, in which God will not examine the actions in isolation and taken in themselves, but will examine them in their effects upon other men, in the good or evil deriving from them for families and peoples. In a word, in the consequences which they produced and which those who perpetrated them ought to have foreseen. The second reason given by the angelic doctor for this public manifestation relates to the false judgments and mistaken appraisals of human opinion. Most men, even the wisest and most enlightened, are easily outwitted and deceived by others. They do not discern the innermost depths of souls. They cannot reach what is secret and interior in them. Hence it happens that they generally form their judgments on appearances, on what is visible and exterior. Again it follows that good men are often treated with undeserved severity, that they are unappreciated and injured in their reputation. On the other hand, the wickedness of a large number of men remains unknown. They everywhere enjoy public esteem and trust, and the world accords them that consideration and praise which is due to the just alone. So a judgment is necessary which exposes every pretense, unmasks all hypocrisy, and lays bare hidden ruses and all false and base virtues. This judgment, St. John tells us, will not take place according to the flesh nor according to that which the eyes see and the ears hear. It will be accomplished in the dazzling splendor of the light of God, in the discernment of all intentions and all desires, the full intuition of the most secret and mysterious recesses of the heart. Lastly, a third reason given by St. Thomas is that God governs men by means adapted to the circumstances of their nature and will judge them according to the promises he made them and the hopes which he aroused in them. Whether rewarding or punishing them, he owes it to his wisdom to keep to the laws and limits of distributive justice, such as he has fixed them in this life. Now St. Paul himself calls the present life a course, a race, an arena. He portrays man as a traveler on this earth, under the figure of a soldier or athlete rushing after his crown. He holds forth before us the prospect of eternal life, which he calls by the names of palm, trophy, crown of justice, crown of life and glory. In order, then, that the reward may really match the promise, it has to be bestowed at a public assembly, with a pomp and ceremony worthy of him who confers it, in the presence of all those who have taken part in the battle, of all the enemies over whom the saints have triumphed, following the manner in which ancient Rome and Greece used to act towards their victorious warriors and heroes. In what place will the Last Judgment be held? No one knows with the certainty of faith, but the general opinion of the Fathers and that of St. Thomas is that it will be in the Valley of Josaphat. Holy Scripture gives this name to the region through which flows the Cedron torrent, which includes within its boundaries the town of Jerusalem and also Calvary, and exceeds as far as the Mount of Olives. Is it not indeed fitting that Christ should manifest Himself in His glory in the very places which were the scene of His agony, where He appeared in His sufferings and humiliations? Such was what the angels implied when they said to the disciples, This Jesus who is taken from you will thus come. Is it not also most appropriate that the part of the earth where the first man was created, where the son of god wrought the redemption and salvation of men should likewise be the one where the saints will receive the fulness of the fruits in his passion and death where they will take part in his glorious ascension and where jesus christ will exact a just vengeance on his persecutors and on all those who have refused to wash their souls by the infinite power of his blood it is for this reason that the prophet joel exclaims in chapter 3 and the lord shall roar out of zion and utter his voice from jerusalem again in the same chapter he says I will gather together all nations, and will bring them down into the Valley of Josephat, and I will plead, that is dispute, with them there for my people. Therefore it is an indubitable truth that the judgment will be held in the Valley of Josephat. It is useless to object that our view cannot be sustained, and that it is sufficiently refuted by the fact that the Valley of Josephat occupies a space less extensive and more confined than most of the Alpine valleys, and that, consequently, it could not possibly hold the thousands of millions of human beings who have followed one another, or will yet follow one another, on earth. St. Paul in his epistle to the Thessalonians resolves and throws light on this difficulty. He reminds us that on the day of judgment, the resurrected elect will not be massed together on earth, but shall be taken up to meet Christ into the air. Our Lord Jesus Christ will descend into the region of the air situated above the valley of Josaphat, and there, surrounded by his angels, he will sit on the throne of his majesty. Is it not indeed fitting that, by reason of his dignity, the judge should be raised above all, on an elevated spot, from where he can be seen and heard by all men? Is it not equitable that in consideration of merit and perfection, an honorable place nearer the sovereign judge should be assigned to the elect who have been released from the laws of gravity and, possessing glorious and subtle bodies, will no longer need the earth for support? The reprobate alone will be detained on earth. But, as Suarez points out, we should be wrong to imagine them restricted and confined within the narrow limits of the Valley of Josaphat. Their enormous number will extend, so far as necessary, into the surrounding area, to the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Sion, the site where Jerusalem stood, and perhaps two remote areas. If it is said that the judgment will take place in the Valley of Josaphat, this is because Christ will set up his throne above it, and because this valley will be the place in which mankind will begin to assemble. By whom will the judgment be executed? By Christ Jesus not precisely by Christ Jesus as God, who shares the same substance and the same life with His Father, but by Christ Jesus inasmuch as He became incarnate in time and is called the Son of Man. It is said in St. John, chapter 5, For neither doth the Father judge any man, but hath given all judgment to the Son, that all men may honor the Son as they honor the Father. John 5, 22. He gave Him power to judge because He is the Son of Man. Indeed, as God, Jesus Christ is equal to the Father, the expression and image of His sovereign power, and possesses, connaturally with the other two divine persons, the right to judge which they have. From this point of view, Christ does not have to receive a second investiture, and it is only in considering Him as a man that St. John could say that He will be honored by all because of the judicial power conferred upon Him by His Father. In the following verse, St. John teaches us that Christ has received the power to restore the dead to life. I say unto you that the hour cometh and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. This passage makes clear that the power to resurrect conferred upon the Son of Man is a consequence of his capacity as judge. It is essential for the exercise of judicial authority that he who is invested with it should have the means of summoning the guilty and bringing them up before his tribunal. As the judgment has to be executed over men, observed St. Thomas, it must be adapted to their capacities. It must take account of the demands and inclinations of their nature. Man, however, is composed of soul and a body. He apprehends spiritual and invisible things only through the agency of tangible things. That being so, is it not essential that man should be judged by a man, by a being who appears in the flesh, whose face he can see and whose voice he can hear? Rightly, St. John tells us, And he hath given him power to do judgment, because he is the Son of Man. John 5:27. Furthermore, if we study things after our way of thinking, must not the judge be seen by all men summoned to his bar? Now, inasmuch as he has a human form, Christ will be seen by the just and the wicked simultaneously. Inasmuch as he has a divine form, he can show himself to the elect alone. Lastly, God the Father has entrusted the judgment to Jesus Christ as man in a spirit of kindness, in order to temper the brilliance of this awesome manifestation and to soften its severity and rigor. For the Church tells us in her liturgy, What horror will invade the mind when the strict judge, who would be kind, shall have few venial faults to find. Dies here. If Christ were to appear in the aspect of a superior and altogether celestial nature, what human being would manage to bear the weight of his majesty and the fire of his gaze? He will appear then with the face and form which he had during his mortal life. He will have his cross and the other marks of his humiliations precede him. He will let the scars of the wounds in his feet and hands be seen. The reprobate will no longer dare to oppose his justice, and the good in their turn will feel drawn to him in deeper trust. The heart of St. Paul was filled with joy and hope, as he reflected that christ was to be his judge he felt all his fears and distrust vanish who shall accuse against the elect of god he said god is he that justified who is he that shall condemn christ jesus that died yea that is risen also again who is at the right hand of god who maketh intercession for us romans 8:33. 33. as for the manner of this second coming it will be like the first it will be the same christ and the same man and his features and appearance will be the same as during his mortal life It will be enough for those who lived and spoke with him to set eyes on his person in order to recognize him. However, this second manifestation will not come in weakness and humiliation, but in majesty and glory. St. Matthew's Gospel says, I say to you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power of God and coming in the clouds of heaven. In other words, Jesus Christ will appear surrounded by the pomp and apparel of divine kingship. The glorified elect and the multitude of angels will form a resplendent court around his throne, such as no mind could portray. Those who have fought with the greatest constancy, who have followed him the most closely in the arena of his sufferings, will be the nearest to his person. Then shall the just stand with great constancy, says the Book of Wisdom, against those who have afflicted them and taken away their labors. We can imagine the regrets and despair of the damned by virtue of the picture which the same inspired author draws of them. These, seeing it, shall be troubled with terrible fear, and shall be amazed at the suddenness of their unexpected salvation, saying within themselves, repenting and groaning for anguish of spirit, These are they whom we had sometime in derision and for a parable of reproach. We fools esteemed their life madness and their end without honor. Behold how they are numbered among the children of God, and their lot is among the saints. Therefore we have erred from the way of truth, and the light of justice hath not shined unto us, and the sun of understanding hath not risen upon us. Wisdom 5, 1-6 The apostles, martyrs, doctors, and thousands of the just who have fought for the honor of God and for the interests of the faith will unite with their leader in proclaiming the truth of his sentences and the equity of his judgments. This judgment is rightly called universal because it will be exercised over all members of the human race, because it will cover every crime, every misdemeanor, and because it will be definitive and irrevocable. In the first place, the last judgment will be exercised over all members of the human race. The men of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue will appear at it. There will be no more distinction of wealth, birth, and rank among them. Those whose names were Alexander, Caesar, and Diocletian will be jumbled together with herdsmen who at this moment are grazing their flocks on unknown deserted shores where the ashes of these masters of the world lie scattered. Men will then be ruled by concerns other than those of curiosity and empty admiration. Far more serious spectacles will hold their gaze and attention. The figure of the world will have passed away, and the victories of great captains, the works conceived by genius, the enterprises and great discoveries, will be deemed mere shams and child's play. Just as in the theatre, says St. John Chrysostom, when an actor goes off the stage, it is not because of the part he has played that people admire him. They praise neither the fact that he has imitated the personality of a king, nor the fact that he has acted a lackey or a beggar. Rather they praise his skill, and they applaud only the perfection with which he has played his part. So, at the last judgment, a man will not be honored because he was a king, an eloquent orator, a minister, and a great statesman. All these honors and distinctions, which the world holds in such high esteem, will be deemed of no merit and of no value. Men will be praised solely for their virtues and good works. Secondly, this judgment is called universal because it will cover every crime and offense. Only then will history begin. In the clarity of the light of God, all the crimes, public and secret, which have been committed in every latitude and in every age, will be seen clearly and in detail. The whole life of each human being will be laid bare. No circumstance will be omitted. No action, word, or desire will remain unknown. We shall be reminded of the different periods we have gone through. The lustful man will have his disorderly living and libertine speeches set out before him. The ambitious man, his devious Machiavellian ways. The judgment will unravel and bring out all the strands and the duplicity of those intrigues so cleverly hatched. It will set out in their true light all those base repudiations of principles, those craven acts of complicity, which men invested with public authority have sought to justify, whether by invoking the specious pretext of reason of state, or by covering them up with the mask of piety or disinterestedness. The Lord, says St. Bernard, will reveal all those abuses which people concealed from themselves, all those unknown dissipations, those planned crimes where the only thing lacking was the actual commission. Those pretended virtues and those forgotten secret sins blotted out from the memory will appear suddenly like enemies darting out from an ambush. Without doubt there are men so hardened in evil that the thought of this terrible manifestation has little effect upon them. Being familiar with crime, they treat it as a subject of amusement and boasting. And without, they fondly imagine that they will assume the same effrontery at the judgment, and by their cynical, arrogant attitude, defy the majesty of God and the conscience of the human race. Vain hope. Sin will no longer be viewed from the opinion of carnal men, ready to excuse the most violent outbursts because they do not harm any neighbor, either in his goods or in his life. The foulness and disorder of sin will be revealed in the ineffable clarity of the light of God. Sin, says St. Thomas, will be judged as God himself judges it. Three main classes of men will draw attention to themselves. The first of these will be the sons of justice and light, whose merits and good works will be extolled and given public approbation and praise by the perspicacious infallible judge whose testimony can admit of no error or contradiction. In the second class will be the sons of Voltaire, the leaders of free thought and the revolution who, at the present time, are hatching dark and sacrilegious plots against Christ and his church. They will be terror-stricken, and they will tremble with unspeakable horror when they see appear in his glory and omnipotence him whom they had wished to crush, whom they had stigmatized by calling him enemy, fool, and the infamous one. They will utter a final scream of rage and malediction, crying out like Julian the Apostate, Thou hast conquered, Galilean. The third category of men who will be given special attention at the judgment will be composed of the sons of Pilate, the worshippers of the golden calf and the chameleons of wealth and power. Clouds without water, as St. Jude calls them, drifting along with every opinion and doctrine, with no other religious or political compass than that of their ambition, always ready to ride roughshod over their conscience and their principles, speculating on the blood of souls for lack of gold and delivering up Christ like the Roman moneylender in order to purchase the honors and goodwill of the master of the moment. This hideous repellent type recurs continuously with the same characteristics at every period of crisis and social unrest. St. John in his Gospel has popularized this archetype of lying and cowardice in a figure of speech forever popular and living, in which all our pilots in legislation and government who sell the just man for the sake of procuring favors and lucrative honors will be eternally recognized. Such men as these will learn at the judgment that it is not expedient to serve two masters. They will curse the straw Caesars to which they rendered that which they refused to render to God, and will exclaim, Therefore we have erred. Wisdom 5.6 Finally, the last judgment is called universal because it is definitive and irrevocable. The judgment is irrevocable because there is no level of jurisdiction higher than God's, and there can be no appeal from absolute justice to relative and limited justice. So there will be no reinstatement, no partial or complete amnesty. Divine sentences are irreformable, and he who sees all things, who has foreseen the crux and conclusion of human destiny in the eternal decrees of predestination, is not a being likely to go back on his judgments. What he has said, he will fulfill." what he has done he will confirm what he once desired will remain eternally fixed for heaven and earth will pass away but the word of god will not be subject to any error or change these great truths make little impression on us because the day of their fulfillment is only a faint prospect set in the distant future and because we fondly imagine that between now and the time when they are fulfilled we shall mitigate their severity it is true that the deliberation of these great assizes still lie ahead of us but the preliminary examination has begun and it continues it is written the eyes of the Lord are upon the just, but the countenance of the Lord is against them that do evil things. He that loveth iniquity hateth his own soul. Psalm 33:16 and Psalm 10:6. Just as in our times the telegraph has become a marvelous means of communication among men, instantaneously transmitting our orders and our every word from one point of space to another with the rapidity of lightning, so there is likewise a divine telegraph. Each of our thoughts, the very moment it is conceived, each of our words, as soon as it is uttered, is immediately transcribed in indelible letters, and with frightening accuracy, into that great book mentioned in the sacred liturgy, where it is said, Then the written book will be brought, in which is contained all things, whence the world will be judged. Let us not then be intimidated by the arrogance and dark threats of the wicked, we who, at this moment, are subjected to violence and oppression, whose rights are unrecognized and trampled underfoot, and who, exposed to the ruses and machinations of faithless men, suffer the odious excesses of despotism and force. If God is silent and seems at this moment to be asleep, he will unfailingly awaken in his own time. We repeat, the examination has begun, the files of evil men are complete, the witnesses have been summoned, and the evidence has been requisitioned. If the most solemn hearing of all has been adjourned, it is for a short period only. The story is told of a proud, valiant, and high-minded Prince of Brittany, who was defeated and taken prisoner by a fierce rival and sent to languish in a dark dungeon where he was kept short of air, bread, and sunshine. His end was not long in coming, amidst horror and under the pressure of a coldly calculated, slow torture. On the point of death, the victim addressed the summons to his murderer in these terms. I appeal against your violence and your barbarism to the supreme protector of the oppressed, and in a year and a day I shall summon you to appear with me at his divine tribunal. When the day came, the murderer did indeed pass from life to death. We are not a prophet, and we should not venture to summon at short notice all wicked men, the pamphleteers of free thought, the instigators of unjust laws, those who violate the honor and liberty of the family and the rights and virtue of children, but that those men who defy God and deride his threats will one day have a minute and rigorous account to render to his justice is an absolutely certain truth, and, sooner or later, they will settle that account. On the day of solemn reparation, the wicked who called the just fools, who glutted themselves on their tortures and tears like starving men devouring bread, will learn to their cost that God does not suffer himself to be mocked, and that there will be no impunity or license for the benefit of crime and evil. All wrongs will be strikingly redressed. The blood of Abel which washed the earth will gush out over Cain and raise an accusing voice against him. Saint Peter will demand an account of Nero for the torture to which he sentenced him. Mary Stuart will call down the divine vengeance upon the head of Elizabeth of England, her murderer. All the saints will cry out with one voice to God, How long, Lord, will you not judge and vindicate our blood from those who live in the earth? Apocalypse 6.10 It will be a great court of appeal to which an immense number of cases famous on earth will be referred, where an infinite number of judgments which fear, ambition, or self-interest have dictated to men will be irrevocably annulled, where, in a word, providence, against which fools blasphemed on earth with accusations that it was harsh, unjust, and blindly partial, will provide complete justification for its ways, as it is written, that you may be justified when you give sentence. Psalm 50 The story is told of a man in Germany who lived by himself and was held in renown on account of his holiness and his works. He cured the sick, restored the sight of the blind, and drew the people of the surrounding area to his dwelling. The emperor Otto determined to go to visit him, Captivated by the words of wisdom which flowed from the saint's lips, his admiration knew no bounds. "'Father,' he said, "'ask of me what you please, and, were it half my kingdom, you will receive it.' The saint's expression became solemn, and majestically he raised his head, crowned as it were with a diadem of nobility and virtue. Placing his hand upon the emperor's breast, he solemnly replied, "'Prince, I have no use for your crown and your treasures.' But I ask of you one favor, that, amidst the pomp and fascination of your omnipotence and majesty, you should withdraw each day, for a few moments, into the hidden recesses of your heart, in order to reflect upon the account which you will one day render to God. For, as St. Clement the Pope says, who shall be able to sin if he always places before his eyes the judgment of God which will certainly be exacted at the end of the world? Let us do likewise and say with the prophets, I thought upon the days of old, and I had in my mind the eternal years. Psalm 76, 6. Let us judge ourselves rigorously, and we shall not be judged. Let us live with the Lord Jesus all the days of our life, and then we shall be freed from all fear, for there is no condemnation upon those who dwell with the Lord Jesus.